The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 8. And our, our study this evening is a continuation of the sin offering that's described in the fourth chapter of Leviticus. This is the fourth of the offerings in Israel's worship in the tabernacle. And the entire fourth chapter is about the sin offering as well as parts of chapters uh, 8 and 9. So you can peruse those chapters as I speak. And uh, if you can do that and still maintain a listening mode as I try to explain some of the things that we're going to talk about here. If you can do that, then more power to you. But we're going to talk about this subject, once again, of the sin offering. And there isn't a a single verse that we could use that encapsulates this offering. So I want to read a small part of the 8th chapter, that is the 14th verse and the beginning of the 15th. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 14, And he brought the bullock, that is, Aaron brought the bullock for the sin offering, And Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. And then the beginning of verse 15, and he slew it. Now finally, in this fourth offering, we're at the place where most of you thought that we would be at the beginning of this series. When we think of sacrifices, the first thing that, that comes to our mind is a sacrifice for sin. And that's because in our practical understanding of Christianity. It is the cross of Christ that is the beginning point. It's the sacrifice of Christ for sin that compels us to come to him for salvation. So we expect that we would see in the Old Testament, in the typology, an altar that represents the cross of Christ, and we would see the bulls and the, and the sheep and the goats, and those would represent Christ dying for sin, and that would be the first point of our discussion. And probably there are most that have no knowledge that only two of the sacrifices, two types of sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament uh, were made, two of the five were made regarding sin. And so such is the case that we have two categories of offerings which are separate aspects of Christ and his work as our Savior. So we find that there are sweet savor offerings, there are three of those, and there are two non-sweet savor offerings, and respectively, they show the purpose of uh, the character of Christ in his life. Those are the first three offerings, the, the sweet savor, and then in the last two, the non-sweet savor, that is Christ's payment for sin in his death. Andrew Jukes, an English theologian, gave a very nice compact explanation of the differences in those two classifications, and he wrote, the sweet savor offerings were for acceptance the others for expiation. In the first class, sin is not seen at all. It is simply the faithful Israelite satisfying Jehovah. In the sin offerings, it is just the reverse. It is an offering charged with the sin of the offerer. In the burnt offering and other sweet savor offerings, the offerer came as a worshiper to give in his offering, which represented himself, something sweet and pleasant to Jehovah. In the sin and trespass offerings, which were not of a sweet savor, the offerer came as a convicted sinner to receive in his offering, which represented himself, the judgment due to his sin or trespass. Now that is a very important statement that has bearing on the first part of our outline. 
Our first, our first point that we've talked about in the past couple of messages is the order of the offerings. And I'd like to repeat this information for a third time because the theology of this offering is critical to our understanding of salvation. And I'll say this, that if you are interested in only a, a rudimentary knowledge of the way that God affected our salvation, then just tune out right now. You don't really need to hear the rest of what I have to say. But what I've tried to do in these studies is to take hard passages like we have here in Leviticus and tie them to New Testament teachings of the doctrines of the faith. I always find it interesting to take things apart, to examine them, to see how they work. And this is what we have to do when we get into Leviticus and we look at all these obscure practices and minute details in this part of the Scripture. So the order of the offerings is different in their human and divine perspectives. The applicational order shows that before we can be sweet savor or pleasing to God, as Jukes explained, before we can be like Christ, whose life was a, a life of obedience, a life that was well-pleasing to the Father, we first have to come to God based on an offering for sin. First of all, we have to be pardoned. We must be justified. We must be accepted because there's an offering that's been made for sin. So in this, Christ is our sin bearer. He is a non-sweet savor offering made in order to reconcile us to God, and only then are we able to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, that we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. And so in the application of the offerings, the sin offering is always first. And you'll see that in chapters 8 and 9. But then in the institutional order that we find in uh, chapters 1 through 5, that is different, and that's the order from a divine perspective, and that's the way that the sacrifices were handed down to Moses. This is God's viewpoint of the work of Christ. That sweet savor must come first, because these are the offerings that represent Christ's life, and that is the way that God gave us his Son. First of all, Christ came... He lived a perfect life. He pleased the Father through his obedience. And then his obedience to the law qualified him to be an all-sufficient Savior. And so he lived, and then he died. And that's the order that we see in chapters 1 through 5. The sweet savor, his life, and then the non-sweet savor, which is his death. And obviously that's an order that can't be reversed in the divine mind. And I love those kinds of distinctions because... And they really aren't hard to understand once we point these out because we're so tempted to read passages of Scripture like this and we just glide on by them and we see an institutional order in one place, one order of sacrifices in one place, another order of sacrifices in another place. And we've got to take time to look at that and say, why? Why is it this way? Is there any meaning to that? And surely we have to say that God is not haphazard that he does have a purpose in everything that he does. There is a reason for this. Now, the implication of it is that the difference is that anyone who has a theology who says that good works earn redemptive favor with God is wrong. That God never looks at any moral good without the application of a sin offering that's appropriated by faith. And so the person who says, well, I have enough good works banked in order that and able to, to enable me to get into heaven. Or one that says, well, you know, I've got enough money to pay me out of purgatory. It's going to find when he gets into eternity that his bank account is robbed 
because there is not a solitary good work of any kind, certainly not another, not a dollar bill that's accepted without a sin offering. And so a sweet savor offering is of no value until the blood of the sin offering has been applied. And so we learn from the text in chapter 4, combined with chapters 8 and 9, that the basis of our fellowship and communion with God is the offering that Christ made for sin. Now, another way that we see that in the Scriptures would be in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. This is at the death of the cross. It says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. The author of Hebrews explains the significance of that in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Where he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So that curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies represented Christ's body. And when he died on the cross, that, that his flesh was torn, and the way to God was open. So the veil was torn, signifying that the barrier between us and God was removed, and that gives us access into the benefits of his salvation. And that really impresses upon me the importance of keeping the distinction between these classification of offerings. We don't want to confuse the meaning or the application of them. Now, unfortunately, there are some that do, as one author that I read, that he missed, he missed this when he said that the burnt offering is for the forgiveness of our sins. And he reasoned correctly that we must have the forgiveness of sins that's needed first before we can approach God. But he missed this, that in chapters 8 and 9, in the applicational order, it's not the burnt offering that comes first. That's a, that's a, that's a sweet savor offering. It does not come first. Instead, we find that the non-sweet savor, the sin offering, is the one that's first. So he followed the institutional order rather than the applicational and that, in effect, would have an Israelite presenting himself pleasing to God without a covering for his sin. That's an error that shouldn't be made because it, it reverses the order of justification and sanctification. So here's just, this is just a little bit of a point of theology for you, that the doctrines of Scripture harmonize, the Scriptures themselves harmonize, Old Testament and New Testament fit together like square pegs in square holes, Doctrinal mismatches are square pegs in round holes. It just doesn't work. Now, hopefully, I'm not going to have to make this point again uh, about that, uh, the order of sacrifices, maybe only again in just a brief reference. Otherwise, if you're not clear about the meaning of that, be sure that you ask me in class or come to me personally if need to. Now, the second part that we observed was the acknowledgement of sin. The trespass offering is the one that comes next in our discussion. It's the last in the institutional order. But to understand the purpose of the sin offering, we, we, we do have to take just a moment to look at the trespass offering to see the difference. That the sin offering is not made in response to the commission of a particularly named sin. It's the trespass offering that will take care of those. But this sin offering is a necessary one for the inherent common problem that stretches across all of humanity. Every person descended from the first man, Adam. And we haven't all sinned in the same way that Adam sinned, although many sins are commonly committed. 
But we all are sinners by the fact that we are descended from our earthly father, Adam. We have a sin nature that is inherited from him, just as surely as we have fingers and toes and a nose. We have that inherited from Adam. And this offering, the sin offering, is not about individual sins, but it's about the sin nature. That all are born dead in sin. The sin nature has to be changed just as surely as individual sins need to be forgiven. And it is the sin nature that's the cause of our propensity to sin. The sin nature can't be outgrown. It can't be fixed. It can't be overcome except by the power of the Holy Spirit through the offering of Christ. And so the sin offering ensures the final stage of our salvation when the sin nature is going to be eradicated. And you're very much aware that the sin nature itself is not taken away in this life, but the effect of that sin nature in deadening our senses against God and being a blinder to the glorious gospel of Christ is set aside. And while that sin nature still operates in us, and it will until we're finally glorified, it's no longer an influence that can't be overcome. Instead, we have the change, a new nature that's been given to us. And so in Christ, we are able to overcome that sin nature that kept us away from God. So in Christ, there's this view towards the future eradication of the sin nature. God is an eternal God. His purposes are eternal. And although we do struggle with the sin nature now, we struggle in the present, uh, God is going to remove it. And so as far as God's eternal purpose is concerned, satisfaction has been done for our sin nature. And so when the blood of the sacrifice has been applied to us, the sin nature is no longer counted against us, but rather we're seen in Christ, in one sense, entirely sanctified, so that at the very moment that we believe, we are as fit for heaven as we'll ever be. We are sanctified in Jesus Christ, and we're ready to go, heaven, go to heaven right then. Well, we know that there isn't a person who dies uh, with a sin nature who is perfect, and all of us do. But we do know that when a believer dies, he goes immediately into the presence of God. There isn't a purgatory that he has to pass through as a final scrubbing to get through, uh, a scrubbing through personal sufferings, but God accepts Christ's suffering and death as full satisfactory payment for our sins. So we don't go to heaven with a sin nature. Our body that's raised in the resurrection doesn't have a sin nature, but we're changed to be like Christ, and we are glorified uh, because of this perfect work of Christ alone that changes us and makes us perfect as he is perfect. Now, in the last discussion, we proved that the fall of man was radical in its corruption that our nature has thoroughly ruined every aspect of us, and that prevents any kind of spiritual response to God. That's termed being dead in trespasses and sin. And the Scriptures are very clear about this. There are none that please God. There are none that mind the things of the Spirit. There are none that are alive to God. Romans 8, 6 says that the carnal mind is death. Verse number 7 says it's enmity against God. Verse 8 says there's no one in the flesh that can please God. And yet, it's out of that carnal nature, the carnal mind in spiritual death, that some say, and some Baptists say, that a person can repent and believe. Well, that would have a person coming to God without any spiritual awakening. And because of that impossibility, we see 
scriptural teaching that regeneration is first in the logical order of salvation. This is, as Jesus said in John 3, 8, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, that is, except he be regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he is born, regenerated, he cannot see, that is, seeing as in seeing in faith. And we labor to make that point clear to those who have theological blinders, and it does not mean that we believe that a person is saved before he has faith. But we do need to be awakened first, and in the logical order, the regeneration must come first, but there isn't a time sequence to that. Regeneration, repentance, and faith are all simultaneous, and so it's foolishness, it's disingenuous to say that because we believe this, that we think that a person is saved before faith. We do not. Now, in the logical order, the sin nature prevents our access to God, and so that has to be dealt with first, and then we exercise repentance and faith. That's the difference between regeneration and conversion. Both of those are necessary components of salvation, and both of those are gifts from God. Both are accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reiterated that in John 3, 8, when he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And that would cause us to challenge anyone who says regeneration is the result of repentance and faith to explain what did Jesus mean in John 3, 8. Because repentance and faith are conscious acts of the will by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is secret in connection with the preaching of the gospel. And so if anyone has a challenge to total inability, then we need to let them deal honestly with John 3 and with Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians 2 and many other scriptures. And then also let them challenge the applicational order of sacrifices in Leviticus as they do. Now this, this brings us then to the demonstration of point number two regarding the sin nature. And we see this in chapter four. Uh, thirdly in your outline is the categories of sinners. Now let's go to chapter four in Leviticus. The breadth of the sin nature is seen in four categories of sinners. And uh, let me say to those who believe that the sin offering regards individual particular sins, then we would have to ask, why in the sin offering is this split out into different categories of sinners while the trespass offering doesn't do that? And so there must be a, another angle that God wants us to see. So these categories show us the spectrum of people that no matter who you are, no matter what your occupation is or what your economy is, you are the same as others in God's eyes. That the distinction in people is not a distinction that we make. It's a distinction that God makes. Now, the scriptures teach that God is not a respecter of persons. That counts in two ways. That no one curries favor with God because of who he is. And there's no one who escapes the wrath of God because of who he is. Often we hear people say, God is not a respecter of persons. And so it can't be true that God unconditionally elects and that's nothing but messed up thinking because that's exactly why there must be unconditional election, why it must be true, because there is not a thing in us that caused God to choose us. God didn't respect what we would do as the basis of his choice. And so those who believe that election is conditional based upon foreseen faith do in fact make God a respecter of persons. 
Because then he chooses based upon what they do. They have a faith that others don't have. But that's a little bit of extra information put in for your edification and just another point of how these doctrines fit together. See, God's nothing if he's not logical. God is never self-contradictory. And that is a trait often missing in preachers. So the categories in this text unfold the widespread existence of the sin nature. Everyone, no matter who they are, needs their sins forgiven. And the sin nature must be overcome before anyone can have peace with God. So what are the categories that are here? I only have time for one of them tonight. And uh, this first one is first for a very good reason. First, in the categories of sinners, there are the sins of leadership. In verse number 3 it says, Leviticus 4 verse 3, If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let them bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And then the scriptures continue on in the next verses down to verse number 12 to describe the many different actions that are taken with the animal sacrifice and how that's divided and so on. And with your patience, we will eventually get to all of those distinctions. But if you wonder about that, then what you need to do is just go back to some of the previous messages, take some information out of those, uh, of those discussions, and the same symbolisms that we found there are also here. And the point of that is, as you go through Leviticus and you see many more rituals, that you don't really need to invent a new typology for every one. But there are repetitions of these truths, and these things are always kept, of the truths that these represent, these things are always kept in front of Israel as they worship God. And I don't even think Arthur Pink, the master of typology, could find something new in every one of these. But this is where we start, and this is where God starts. He starts with the priests, the ones who are the spiritual leaders of the people. And so in verse number 3, it is the priest that is anointed. This is the man that's consecrated for leadership, for the worship of God's people. It includes Aaron, who was the high priest, and his sons who served with him in making sacrifices for the people. And this man, we need to mark it very well, was also a sinner. And though he was a very special man, and he had a remarkable position, and he was chosen among millions of people in Israel, that this is a man who has feet of clay. And that's a point that's often obscured by pastors in many of our churches. There is an appalling lack of humility in the pulpit that is sickening. That's the very kind of thing that makes my skin crawl. And so that bothers me enough that there are some churches that I can't attend. There are some conferences that I won't go to. There are some preachers that I won't listen to because I can't get past this self-aggrandizing arrogance of the preacher. I tire of the antics of self-promoting stories where they're always the hero. And I know that I have many faults as a pastor, and you can name as many as you like probably, but I hope that never becomes one of them. So this is where God starts. He starts with the leadership. Sins of leadership must be dealt with before a man is worthy to act in the place of God. See, the priest is a representative of God. He's respected. He's looked up to because of that position. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that part because God has anointed him. God chose him for this position, and he's due a certain amount of respect. As long as we understand that the respect 
for that man is not because of who he is as a man, but it's for the position that he holds and because of the God that he serves. What is the man? He's a sinner. He's chosen from among sinners. He suffers from all the same flaws. He has the same temptations and the same misgivings. He has the same failures. He's a sinful man among sinful men. And you know, even the Roman Catholics get this part right in some degree. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong in their veneration of the Pope, but at least they understand that the Pope also needs a confessor. Their application is all wrong. Their devotion to the Pope is blasphemous, but they do understand that when he's out of the chair, that he's a sinner. The part they don't understand is when he's in the chair, he's probably a worse sinner because of the things that he does. But unfortunately, we find that there are many pastors that promote themselves in holiness more than the Pope. And, and they steal the glory of God for themselves, and they push aside the sinless Christ while they bask in the adulation of people. And they demand it because they believe they deserve it. Well, the sin offering is made for the priest first because he's not better than the people. He has a sin nature. And before he can represent the perfect one and have the right to make offerings for the people, he must repent and receive forgiveness. A sacrifice needs to be made for him before he can offer for the people. Now, here, here's another very sobering thought for the proud pastor that he is under greater, closer scrutiny than anyone in the congregation. He's up front, he is visible, he is an example to be followed. And whether we think it should be or shouldn't be, the pastor is very strongly influential. The pastor holds sway over opinions, over actions, over attitudes. The church in many ways reflects the pastor's style of ministry. And many adopt the doctrine of the pastor simply because he holds it. It's not because they've studied it. It's not because they've tried to figure it out. They've not examined it in detail to find the truth. But they follow a pastor and they trust him implicitly because they want him to do the study instead of them. And they just trust all the conclusions are right. They trust him to be right, and he should be right. He has a duty to be right. And if he's wrong, to be honestly mistaken, but he should never try to shove on the people uh, some kind of an idea that he knows things that he obviously does not know. That's the way that heresy infiltrates the church. Now, praise God for pastors that try to help you to understand the truth. But anyone who says, don't challenge me because I am the pastor, that's a heretic waiting to happen. So this is frightening, it's sobering, the leaders of God's people bear the scrutiny of God as his, reputation, as his representatives. Rather, the, the priests are the only ones that got to go into the tabernacle. There's no one but the high priest that got to go behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. None but him saw the brilliant light of the Shekinah glory. There was none but him that met with God dwelling between the cherubim on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And that unique privilege that he had as God's representative put a target on his back. He's in God's gun sight, so to speak. And that is just a fearsome, awesome responsibility. James reflected on that in New Testament teaching when he said in John, uh, James 3.1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. 
And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So let me remind leadership, and let me remind myself as I do, let me remind deacons, and let remind, me remind teachers in our church that we are examples for the people, that we represent Christ. It's doubly, triply, crucially important what we do, how we conduct ourselves, how we conduct our family lives, how we honor the Lord in serving Him. Sometimes those that are in leadership can undermine the authority of the pulpit. They make it hard for a pastor to preach on certain subjects because as he tries to do it, he understands that there's some in leadership that do the things that you're preaching against. And that makes it very difficult to deal with people, other families in the church, that you, you, you have to talk about sin and preach against sin. You can't have the right effect on people when there are people in leadership that do the very same things you're trying to trying to guard the rest of the flock from. And so when we accept leadership positions, it's not ours to do as we please. It's not ours to be here or not be here as we please. And I, I, I definitely believe this. If you miss, in leadership, if you miss a service, you ought to be the first one to get a copy of a sermon or listen to it on the Internet and hear what was said to help your understanding of Scripture. You need to learn. That goes for deacons, that goes for teachers, that goes for anyone in leadership. You accept the responsibility to be an example. And the people that you lead are not going to be more faithful than you. Now, they'll start out that way, but they won't stay that way. Eventually, they live down to your level. Now, think about this. No matter who you are in the church, you need to think about what the church would be like if all the members were just like you. Do an honest evaluation of that. But there are some who will say, well, with that understanding, with that scrutiny, I don't think that I want to be a leader. Is that your choice? Do Christians have the choice of where they're going to serve God? How God's going to use them? I want you to turn a few pages back to Exodus 28, verse number 1. In the previous chapters... God gave Israel instructions for the tabernacle and the furnishings, and then next he needs a priest to perform all the prescribed duties of worship and to make the sacrifices. So in verse number 1 of Exodus 28, this is what God says to Moses, and I want you to look at this very carefully. Exodus 28, verse number 1. God says to Moses, And go to Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and ask him if he would like to be a priest. Ask him if he has time to take this on, because, you know, he, he is probably a pretty good fit. So let's see if you can get him to do it. Do you see God asking permission? Is God trying to catch Aaron in a good mood and flatter him a little bit to get him to step up? Looks a lot like unconditional election, just to make another point or another application. But this is what it actually says. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with them, with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. God said to Moses, Take them. They will minister in the priest's office. It's not their choice. This is God's choice. And you can just excuse free will for just a minute if you don't mind. And then you think about Jesus. How did he get his apostles? How did he get them? 
He said, hey you, follow me. You're going to follow me. You know, I love the way that Matthew said this in his gospel. He, he wrote this in the third person, in Matthew 9, verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, I'm sure that Matthew, the publican, the tax collector, he was doing pretty well. Most of them did. Jesus said, come on, you're going with me. And he got up and went. And that's the way that Jesus got all of them. And then we read his conversation with them as he's looking them all straight in the eye. And he says in John 15, 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. Now here's the point. When God calls, you don't say, Well, I don't know if I want all that scrutiny. I don't know if I'm up to being an example. Do you think you're going to refuse God? God is sovereign. And since time doesn't matter to God, He's going to get you sooner or later. Do some refuse? And I would say yes, some do refuse. But they aren't the ones that God calls. They get up and they follow God, or He makes them sufficiently miserable until they do. And I want you to listen to this. There isn't any virtue in a Christian who says, well, you know, I'm just going to be honest about the whole thing. I can't be a leader because I'm not going to put myself through that. There isn't any virtue in that kind of honesty. It's an ungrateful, sorry Christian who says, no matter what Christ did for me, I can't do this for him. Now, I need to go on. Leaders need to keep looking back over their shoulder. God is watching you. His word is at stake. His people are at stake. God's not going to let you foul that up and get away with it. Now we look back at chapter 4 again and you'll see there are some steps that the priest took, took in order to take care of his sins. That is representatively to take care of his sins. That part needs some time and I don't want to hold you and rush through that. So next time we're going to come back and we're going to dispense with a lot of the the uh, introductory material that I did tonight, and we'll take, take it up here again in verse number 6. And you see here that the priest dipped his finger in the blood seven times. Why did he do that? Why did he take some of the blood and put it on the horns of the altar of incense? Why? There are relationship issues here. There are Christological issues. There are types upon types that are found here. And then besides that, we have three more categories of sinners. And we need to get to all of that, and we'll... Start on that the next time. So let me leave you with this as we wrap up this evening. We are saved to serve. Salvation is a free ride, but salvation is not a free ride. God will save you. He never put, you never had to put a single thing into it. You never had to do anything for it. You are chosen. You are drawn. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God without any input from you. Because God gave... Jesus Christ, His Son, to die for your sins. But then after all of that, and you understand that, and you believe that, God never said, okay, you can sit down. And when the time comes, I'll be around to pick you up, and I'll just take you on to heaven with me. God never said that. You read the many scriptures about slothfulness, and laziness, and drowsiness, and apathy. And then you read others about work, and about occupying, about being busy. The Levites in the tabernacle are an example of that. The work of worship, 
went on continuously in Israel. The Levites didn't sit down. Uh, we have an example in First Chronicles chapter 9. Not all Levites are priests, and you understand that. It took other attendants. They were the attendants to get everything ready for worship, have everything there in place. And in First Chronicles 9, verses 31 to 33, it says, And Mattathiah, one of the Levites, who was the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, had the set office over the things that were made in the pans. And others of their brethren, of the sons of the Kohathites, were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. And these are the singers, chief of the fathers, the Levites, who remaining in the chambers were free, for they were employed in that work day and night. Now, that particular part there, those that were in the chambers were free. That means that they weren't out doing any kind of secular work because day and night they were preparing things. They were employed in the service of the Lord, preparing things for worship day and night. And this shows us that not all people in the church are pastors, but all people in the church, all church members are workers. Everybody is supposed to be a worker. There is no one who's allowed to sit down and watch others. This is what you do. The Lord's work is the priority. And let's remember that as we serve the Lord Christ in this church. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the lessons that we learn here. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice, the offering for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, there's nothing that we could do. We can't earn our way into heaven. And if we try, we blaspheme the name of God when we do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to realize that it is all by the grace of God that we are saved tonight, and we thank you for that. And then being saved, that we are to work for you. Um, we're to do your work in this world until you come again to take us into heaven. Help us not to be lazy, to sit down and watch others do all the work of the church, but employ every one of us in your service, Lord. All of us have been given a gift to serve. Help us to use that gift. Thank you for those who have come tonight to hear the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.